Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Good morning, church. It's great to be with you all. Thanks again for showing up today in a cold, rainy day and loving each other by being present. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15, Matthew 15. You can turn there now in your Bible. We're continuing our series in the book of Matthew, looking at the Good News Kingdom. And today, we are going to encounter what seems to be Jesus the Jerk. At first glance, we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to see Jesus, we're going to see a woman coming to Jesus with a dire request. We're going to see Jesus seemingly ignore her, then insult her because of her race. So this passage might seem really confusing when we first come to it. But what we're going to see is that Jesus and the kingdom he is bringing really is one of good news. And it's good news because not only are the least likely brought in, but the parameters for acceptance and who and why and how you get accepted really do seem to be unconditional. So Matthew 15, verse 21, I'm going to ask Alistair Helm. She's going to come up for us and read this passage today for us. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled helping, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Awesome. Thank you. There's a lot going on there. We have a demon-oppressed girl. Brad, just let me know if I should change this up or something. We have a demon-oppressed girl, a desperate mother, Jesus seemingly ignoring her at first, then Jesus insulting her, and then Jesus going on and healing a bunch of other people after this girl is instantly healed. And so there's a lot going on, but I want to say those are all the surface-level issues. Those are all just the things we see on an immediate uh, reading of the text, but I want us to see today 
that there are some major theological issues at work underneath that are really critical for us to look at because this absolutely intersects with our everyday life as we seek to follow Jesus as well. Because let me ask you, when was the last time you felt God ignored you? When was the last time you begged God for something and he said no? When was the last time you felt unworthy? Maybe even feel unworthy being here today. When was the last time you felt unworthy or that Christianity must not be for you or you must not be good enough or you must not have enough faith or maybe there just doesn't seem to be enough evidence for Jesus. Maybe your own background sin failing seemed to be a disqualification for you. Have you felt that way before? Do you maybe even feel that way right now? Do you feel like God maybe has you on a merry-go-round of silence? Today, what we want to see is that this Canaanite woman demonstrates not only the nature of what faith is and true Christian saving faith, but she is going to be used by Jesus to show how even the silence of God is meant to draw us deeper into his story. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump in. Jesus, we do ask this morning that you, through your word, by the power of the Spirit, that you would show up big today. God, I ask that for every man, woman, and child here today, Jesus, that as we hear your word opened, as we see Jesus revealed to us, would you warm our hearts? Would you transform hearts of stone into beating hearts of flesh? Jesus, would you move us from being a people of unbelief to a people of deeper and deeper belief? Would you take us from being lost and show us our real rescue in you. Jesus, thank you for how you have met me this week. I want to publicly acknowledge, God, that you have given me a lot of grace and help this week and preparation and wrestling with what's going on here. And so, God, now I pray that, that the Jesus that we read about would become very real to us. It's because of Jesus and our hope in him, we can pray this in confidence. Amen. So like most sermons when they're presented, there's kind of some background work that has to be done, but a lot of what we need to look at really involves things that Jesus is saying. So let's look at this first point that I don't normally normally name points, but I want us to call this first point demons, dogs, and breadcrumbs. So let's look at this first verse. We see this woman come to Jesus and her daughter has a demon. And we've seen Jesus interact with demons before, right? So in one sense, this isn't necessarily new. But where is Jesus? Look in, look in the passage. Where does it say Jesus is going? The text says he withdrew to Tyre and Sidon. Maybe if you have like a study Bible, you can see a picture of a map, and it shows Jesus is going outside of Israel here. That's interesting. One thing that we need to notice is that this language being used of geography is not just physical geography, but I want to call it cosmic geography. This language of borders and nations and kingdoms. 
Think about this, and maybe think about maybe some of your favorite movies, favorite stories. Obviously, Lord of the Rings. Like the bad guys always live in a certain area, right? The bad guys, if you want to go fight them or you're trying to avoid them, they're always in a certain region, right? Has anyone seen the new Amazon Rings of Power show? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, great show. Kind of tells some of the backstory of Lord of the Rings. Well, in the Rings of Power show, this doesn't spoil it, Galadriel has to travel up north in search for these last strongholds of evil. And that's like episode one, so don't worry, I'm not giving anything away. But so she travels up to the north because that's where they think the evil is hidden. So where is Jesus traveling right now? He's going north. He's going outside of the realm of Israel. And we don't notice this, but people reading this would have been, whoa, I know what's in Tyre and Sidon. I know what's up there. One scholar I read this week commented, just three miles north of Jesus is a pagan demonic temple for a god named Eshmun. And you know what he was known for? Healing. Most likely this woman knew that. Most likely her community would have been saying, take your daughter and go to this temple of healing. And again, just like as an aside, if you start to notice this, this language of cosmic geography of where Jesus, even if you look, again, if, if you look at, uh, can we go back to that map? See where there's like the Sea of Galilee? Like in a couple chapters before where we were now, Jesus was on the other side of the water. That was a completely different region than he crosses water. As Jesus is making these geographical moves, they're telling us something. They're communicating something to us. So now he's going outside of Israel. He's going to these demonic strongholds on purpose. And again, there's a major section of this coming up in Matthew 16 where we'll be in a couple weeks. But does this woman take her daughter to the demon temple? Look at what she calls Jesus. She calls him the son of David. What was David known as? He was the warrior king. He was one who conquered the enemies. He was one who kicked out all of those who opposed the God of the Old Testament. And now this woman is saying, son of David, the warrior king, the one who defeats enemies, can you help me? But what, is it, what else does it say about this woman? Is she an Israelite? She's a Canaanite. If you know the story at all, what, what do we know about the Canaanites? She certainly could not claim the lordship of King David. David would not have been her king. The Canaanites were the historical enemies of Israel. The Canaanites slaughtered Israelites. They were cruel. They were vicious. And again, this is hard for us to grasp in our modern day and age, especially in America, because we love and accept all races. We don't view different people as the enemy who are trying to kill us right now in our everyday life. But at this time, a Canaanite was not only an outsider, a Canaanite was an oppressor. 
And that does not stop her from coming to Jesus. Her own people, the demonic allegiance to Eshmun in his temple, does not stop her from coming to Jesus. And what do we see when she comes to Jesus? She gets her background thrown in her face. Jesus makes these comments to her about the house of Israel and how she seems like he's saying, you're one of the dogs. I've only come for the house of Israel. So let's talk about this. What is Jesus saying when he's referring to this house of Israel? What is going on here? So remember, in the story of God, God calls a nation, he calls a people, he calls a household, house of Israel, household, to be his special people in the world, right? And he tells his people, Israel, you are my chosen people, not because you're better than the nations, but I'm going to make you my people to show the nations what I'm like. So he picks a people for the sake of the other people. He picks Israel for the sake of the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, all the surrounding nations. Israel was supposed to be God's special people so that they could show the rest of the world what God was like. So again, you just see that, like God picks Adam and Eve. Then he picks Noah. Then he picks Abraham. Then he picks Moses. Then he builds this nation to be a light, to be a witness. So Jesus, in his response to this woman, is saying, I came to restore Israel because Israel is how the rest of the nations can be blessed and brought in. So Jesus, in one sense is showing that he's putting a priority on Israel. Again, like even looking at the map, most of Jesus' work is all in Israel. Why? Because in the story, Israel has to be restored, and then the rest of the nations could come in. Quick little hint, though. How does Israel get restored? Through the one true Israelite, Jesus. But again, we're jumping ahead there. But, again, what do we see in the story, though? Israel, in the story, becomes proud. Israel turns this, instead of being, we're a kingdom of priests for the nations, they turn it into, we have the law, we're God's special people. This becomes good guys versus bad guys. Who is in and who is out? Who are the kids of the true dad? And who are the dogs? This is language that would have been used to refer to people outside of Israel. So Jesus, by using this language, the household of Israel, who are the kids, who are the dogs, he's alluding to this cultural perception of who are the children? Israel. They're the important ones. And everyone else, maybe you can get some breadcrumbs. Jesus says it, look at verse 26. It's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. In one sense, he's reiterating, I'm here for Israel. I have to restore Israel first, and then you woman, Canaanite woman, then you can be brought in. But what's incredible is, you know, we know, we know Jesus is going to the cross in his death and resurrection and launching the new creation and the nations come, see that happen in Acts. But what's incredible is that future is already slipping in to right now. It's already starting to happen. Already it's being clear and being seen that the faithful of God are not just in Israel, but even the, the outsider is being called to God already. Already before the death and resurrection of Jesus has happened yet. 
And so thus, Jesus heals this woman's daughter in light of her faith. And we're going we're gonna to unpack a little bit more some of her interaction with Jesus. But I want us to acknowledge something that we've already read. And maybe you already passed over it in your mind. Didn't, maybe it didn't stand out to you as important. But I want us to address something that happens in what we've already read. Like I said, and then we're going to go back and look at some of this woman's interaction. Look at verse 23. What does it say? He did not answer her a word. Jesus is silent. And again, if you have the ESV translation, that's actually, I'm not a Greek scholar at all, so don't think that what I'm about to say. But I had to look up in the Greek. It doesn't say Jesus is silent. It says he did not answer her even a word. What in the world? What in the world? How do we make sense of the silence of God? And if we're honest, not just in this woman's life, but in our life. How do we wrestle and reckon with the silence of God? I think both those words are important for us to think about because we have to wrestle and do business with why is God silent at times? How do we make sense of that? Why is God silent when we seemingly need him the most? Look at this woman. This is perhaps her, the most desperate moment of her life, taking all of the courage that she has. She has heard these stories about Jesus. And notice that it's not, Jesus, will you please help me? And he kind of goes, mm -hmm, one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Okay, I'll help you. Like, it's not like he's quiet for like two seconds. He's silent long enough that the disciples and the crowds are coming to him like, can you do something about this? She's, she's asking us to heal now. So like, this was a long silence, friends. This woman would have been screaming, asking someone to help her, and Jesus is just standing there. The disciples come and say, Jesus, she's begging us, can you send her away? This woman in many ways represents us, either in our past, maybe right now, definitely all of us at some point in the future will be made to wrestle with the silence of God. So I would just ask you even right now, is God being silent on something you are begging him for? Does it seem like God is trying to break you? Does it seem like God is maybe even punishing you? Often when we are met with the silence of God in our life, when we are begging God for something, and he's not giving us an answer, he's not making it clear why or how or what he's doing, this forces us to ask the ultimate question. Are you really good and powerful? With all of this evil and suffering, how can I really know God? If you're not even going to answer me, how can I know that you are good? This is what theologians call theodicy. The journey of being met with the silence of God in the face of suffering and asking, how can he be, quote, good and powerful and yet allow bad things to happen? When God seems to disappear, what do you do? 
What happens when you realize that God is not going to protect you from all bad or evil things happening? It's a very unsettling question, but we need to do business with it. We need to wrestle with it. What happens when you realize God is not going to protect you from all bad or evil things happening? One of my favorite theologians right now, a lady named Tish Harrison Warren writes this, if God cannot be trusted to keep bad things from happening to us, then how can he be trusted at all? That's a question to chew on. Because the silence of God forces us to face our grimmest fears and doubts and to ask this question. Tish Harrison Warren writes further that this idea of theodicy is not merely a cold philosophical conundrum, meaning this is not just something that, you know, philosophers and the academics, that's just something they wrestle with. No, this is an everyday reality. She writes, this is the engine of our grimmest doubts. This can sometimes wither belief altogether. A recent survey showed that the most commonly stated reason for unbelief among millennials and Gen Zers was that they have a hard time believing that a good God would allow so much evil or suffering in the world. This is an increasingly common struggle. Our questions persist because ultimately theodicy, wrestling with the silence of God, is not a cosmic algebra equation where we simply solve for X. This is primordial, meaning this is ancient. This is a scream. This is an ache. This is a protest from the depths of the human heart. Are you there, God? Is anyone watching out for us? Does anyone see? Tell us why. Why this evil, this heartbreak, this suffering? If God cannot or will not answer when I need him most, how then can I trust him? Well, what do we see this woman do? When she is met with the silence of God, what does she do? Look at verse 27. I would just say, circle this verse while you're there. She says, yes, Lord. Truth, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Do you see what she says? She says, you're right, Jesus. You're right. I know I'm not worthy. I know I'm not an Israelite. I know I don't deserve to come in. I know you came to the house of Israel first, and I'm a mere Canaanite dog outsider. And in that culture, as a woman, she would have much been counted lesser than anyone else in that setting. Yet what does she say? Yet even the dogs get the crumbs. Even those outside of the promise are those who are bound to receive the promise. Whether this woman is consciously doing this or not, she is drawing on the promise given to Abraham that the nations are going to be brought in, that God was going to establish Israel so then the rest of the world could be brought in. God made this promise to Abraham, go back to Genesis 12, that through you, through the line of Israel, every nation is going to be brought in and be blessed, even the Canaanites. Those on the periphery are going to come in. So what is this woman doing when she's faced with the silence of God? She presses in with a story. 
She presses in with this good news that she had heard predicted of, that maybe people around her had told her. She obviously knew about Jesus. She obviously would have known, okay, well, I'm a Canaanite. I'm not an Israelite. But there's some reason why I should still be going to this guy. A German theologian uh, named Helmut Thielick, he wrote, he was pastor right after World War II when Europe was destroyed and in shambles. He wrote to his struggling German church a sermon on this passage. If you want to read the sermon, I would highly recommend it. But on this, on this woman's response to Jesus, here's what he writes. She renounces all of her unworthiness, her own worthiness, and then flings the sack of Jesus' promises at his feet. He has said that he loves the hungry and the thirsty and the contrite and the low, and thus it's not her great faith that has triumphed. She has triumphed because she's taken Jesus at his word. She throws the sack of Jesus' promises at his feet. I know I'm unworthy, but this is who you are. I know I don't deserve to come in, but Jesus, you said in the Sermon on the Mount just a couple chapters ago, blessed are the low, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, for they will receive and enter in. Jesus, I'm just telling you what you've said. This woman anchors her suffering and silence in a deeper story. And what's incredible is that the silence of Jesus is what is drawing her in. The silence of Jesus brings her to a place of recognizing, I know I'm not good. I know I don't have any claim, but I know what I've heard about you. Friends, that is the essence of the gospel. I know I am terrible. I know I am not worthy. I know that I have no good in me. No righteousness do I have. But you know what? I found one who has all righteousness, and he has promised himself to me. I am worse than I know, but I am more loved than I could ever imagine. This woman is clinging to her hope of the gospel that hasn't even fully been accomplished yet. Jesus' silence is not punishment, but it's actually accomplishing something in this woman's life that an immediate healing would have completely overrode. But why? Why is this possible? Why is it possible that the silence of Jesus could function in this way? Why is it possible that Jesus could heal this woman even while seemingly ignoring her at first? And why, for us, can we know that the silence of God is doing the same thing for us? Why can we know that, church? Because Jesus himself is already preparing to meet the silence of God. Jesus himself is just a couple chapters away from himself being met with the complete silence of God. Let's look at this, Jesus in the silence of the Father. Did you know that there is only one time in the Bible when Jesus does not call God his Father? One time. Did you know there's only one time in the scriptures when Jesus doesn't get an answer from the Father? Did you know the same Jesus who right here is silent with this woman 
would himself encounter the deepest, darkest silence. And not just his own lowest, worst hour, but in the lowest, worst hour of all of humanity, ever. You see, when Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll be reading about in a couple months, Scott's laughing, he's saying, you mean years. When Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed, he goes into a garden to face a test of obedience. Who else was in a garden and faced a test of obedience? Adam. And in this garden, Jesus would pray, asking, is my obedience really necessary? And you know what God said? Look at verse 23. We almost could lay that verse in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did not answer even a word. You could almost take that line of Jesus to this woman and then lay that on Jesus, crying out to the Father. Jesus asked, Father, is this really necessary for me to, to do this to obey? No answer. Fast forward a couple hours, Jesus is dying, exposed, naked, pulverized on a cross, screams out to God, why have you forsaken me? And he answered him not a word. That German theologian I told you about, um, Helmut Thielek, again, like, so imagine him, he's writing to a church that has just endured the horrors of war, of questioning, God, where are you? He references just the destruction of Germany all around him in this sweltering church that he's holding on to. They would have wrestled with the silence of God. They would have wrestled in much deeper ways than we have about this. Listen to what he says. He writes, the cross was God's greatest silence. Then the power of darkness was allowed to make its final bid against the Son of God. Then the demons were unleashed. The most dreadful passions since the fall of Adam were given free reign, and God had nothing to say. There was simply the cry of the dying, asking of the silence why God had forsaken him. But now hear the great mystery of this silence. The very hour when God answered, not a word or syllable, was the hour of the great turning point. When the veil of the temple was rent, God's heart was laid bare with all its wounds. Even when he was silent, God suffered with us. In his silence, he experienced the fellowship of death and the depths with us. Even when we thought he did not care or was dead, he knew all about us. And behind the dark wings, he did his work of love. We live in the power of this Golgotha night of silence. Where should we be without the cross? Where should we be without the knowledge that God sends his son to us in the silent depths and valleys, that he is our fellow in death, that he has indeed his high thoughts, that they come with power at Easter, the resurrection in glorious fulfillment, surpassing any all expectation. The silence of God the Father with Jesus was intended to accomplish something. In the silence of God with Jesus, the veil of the temple was torn. Do you know what that means? 
that the veil of the temple was torn. Sin was covered and forgiven. The enduring covenant that Jesus made through his death was sealed forever because that veil was torn. In the silence of the suffering Jesus, we were given unhindered access to the Father. In the silence, the demonic forces were being shut down because they'd exhausted all their power on Jesus. In the silence, the mission of God to reclaim humanity was moving forward. So friends, have you ever considered that the silence of God and the grief and the angst that it causes is actually intended to do something in your life? It's actually intended to draw you to one who also suffered the silence of God, but who now is with you in the silence of God. If all of that is what was happening in the silence of God with Jesus, just what do you think God might be doing in your own life with the silence you are walking through? What is God doing? What do you think he could be revealing? What do you think he wants to illuminate to you? Remember that quote I read earlier? If God cannot be trusted to keep bad things from happening, then how can he be trusted at all? How can God be trusted? Because of the story. Because we don't offer people or ourselves explanations for why and how in these cosmic equations of what God could be doing, we hold out the story of a God who suffers with his people, of a God who himself stepped into the silence and the angst and the agony. We offer a retelling of reality, and we hold on to this story just like this Canaanite woman did when she came to Jesus. So going back to this woman... That's what we see her do. She grabs hold of what she has heard and known about Jesus, this son of David, this God who's promised to protect the weak and the needy. She acknowledges, I know I'm not worthy. I know I don't deserve to come to you. But I know you answer those who call on you. You are strong, she says, and so I will come to you. You are enough. So let me come to you. So we see this woman not only showing us how to walk through silence and suffering, but this woman is showing us the very nature of Christian faith. Not that we suddenly conjure up some kind of internal strength and fortitude, but no, we recognize the one who is enough, the one who is strong, and we say, I am in him, and he is enough. Let's pray, and then we're going to Uh, prepare for communion together. Jesus, I pray for us this morning, for those of us here who do wrestle with your silence, for those of us here who can recall times when it seems you were near and then times when it seems you are distant. Pray, God, for those here who are pleading and longing with you to answer prayer requests. Jesus, would we, like this woman, find all of our healing and refuge and salvation at your feet?
Jesus, would you help us to renounce our own wisdom and plans and expectations? Because often in the silence, it becomes very clear what we expected you, God, to do. So God, would you, like with this woman, help us to acknowledge, I know I'm not worthy. I know I have my plans of how this was supposed to go, but Jesus, son of David, would you have mercy on me? Jesus, we thank you that even as we utter those words of asking for your help, we see the cross. The cross that is your forever answer of your love and your commitment to us. So Jesus, would you help us to grab hold of that and lay that over the realities of our life where we struggle, where we are weak. Can I pray for the ones here who feel they can't hold on much longer. Pray for the ones here, Jesus, who have suffered for years, questioning, wondering, waiting, longing. Lord, often what we are asking you for is good things. Jesus, would you draw us? Would you draw us back into the story? Would you draw us back into the bigger narrative of what you are doing. And until we receive an answer, Jesus, help us to be faithful. Help us to see, even as we come to the communion table, that you have answered. Help us to see in the communion table and coming to receive a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, that in your body and blood given for us, you have forever answered the deepest agonies and cries of our heart. And Jesus, would that transform us to not just be a people who come and receive, but then who say, people need to know about this. People need to know and see and come to this son of David. Jesus, for those of us who are weak and fearful and timid, would you transform us to be witnesses where we feel I'm not articulate or I don't have good words or I don't know how to put stuff together. I'm not a pastor. I don't know the Bible very good. Jesus, would you help us to silence those doubts and those lies and those accusations? Would you make us faithful witnesses of the body and blood of Jesus? And even now, Jesus, as we come to receive from the communion table, would you strengthen us? Would you bring people into our mind that you are sending us to. Because we all will come and receive of this table today, Jesus, but there are more people who need to be drawn to this table. So Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen us and that you would send us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.